Alcatraz was built to keep all the rotten eggs in one basket. And I was specially chosen to make sure that the stink from the basket does not escape. But since I've been warden, a few people have tried to escape. Uh, most of them have been recaptured. Those that haven't have been killed or drowned in the bay. No one has ever escaped from Alcatraz. And no one ever will. Decree absolute. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on the degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's no degree partial. It's a degree absolute. has always been the Brian De Palma of our preamble. Brian De Palma was the one in that uh, first assembly of Star Wars when the opening title crawl was uh, apparently much, much, much longer than it ended up being. It was like, uh, yeah, George, baby, you can't do this. You gotta, gotta whittle. Um, I'm allowed to swear, right? I know that is a cliche question. No fucking way, Jesse. You keep your potty mouth... Off of these august airwaves. The next podcast I launch will be called Can I Swear on This? Yes. Yes, you are allowed to swear. Magoon is dead, so yes, please swear. Thank you for swearing. And Clint Eastwood is dead to me, so. Really? Is it because of that that Republican National Committee appearance talking to the chair? Talking furniture. (laughs) Do you think when Sting wrote that Oscar-nominated song, The Empty Chair, some years later, he wrote it about Clint Eastwood? It's entirely possible. At the 2012. All right. Glenn. Chris. You disobey the rules of broadcasting. Mm. They send you to podcasting. Sure they do. When you disobey the rules of podcasting, they send you here. Okay, nicely done. Welcome to The Rock. <laughs> Welcome to Alcatraz. Thunderclap, which is a thing that happens in the movie. Yeah, not only do we see a reprise of the, the prisoner thunderclap, we also get the uh, the bright, intense, white circular light mm-hmm. that, that sort of uh, the, the pulsator. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have quite the same sonic presence in this movie that it has in The Prisoner, but we, we do see it early That's on. true. That's true. And, and just seeing McGowan say the word prisoner, is there's a little frisson mm-hmm. there, a little thrill. Yes. Um, no, I, I like the, the end media res, of uh, much like this episode of our, our podcast, although we're going to bring this efficient uh, narrative to a screeching halt in just a minute, much to your eternal chagrin. I like that this movie opens with Frank Morris, played by Clint Eastwood, arriving at The Rock. There's no preamble. There's no backstory. We don't even know what crime he was convicted of. He's just showing up to serve his time. I love it. Damn right. Why are we talking about Escape from Alcatraz? This is a very good question, Chris, that I hope we will address, but go ahead. Well, there is a a simple, concise, pithy answer, and that answer is that in 1966, Patrick McGowan, star of the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident, nope, scratch that, many residents are referred to only by their number, surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously and lava-lampedly of its time, that short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. And uh, after The Prisoner... Okay. 
About a decade after when uh, its creator and star, Patrick McGowan, had taken himself into, into exile in Southern California, kind of a velvet cage in many ways, as we've documented, he developed a friendship with Peter Falk and got some work in American TV. But one of his most notable drop-in character roles, a role in which he punches well above his screen time weight, was as the warden in the 1979 thriller Escape from Alcatraz. This is based on a nonfiction book by J. Campbell Bruce, who is definitely not the guy from Evil Dead and all the Sam Raimi movies, though no one would blame you for your confusion on that point. I do recommend Bruce Campbell's memoir, If Chins Could Kill, but Anyway, the book we're talking about is J. Campbell Bruce's book about the real-life breakout from Alcatraz perpetrated by Frank Morris and brothers John and Clarence Anglin in 1962. Their bodies were never found. Uh, They were presumed at the time to have drowned in the bay, but we don't know. There is other evidence that they may have made good there escape attempt. It all was dramatized in a movie featuring our our beloved Patrick McGee. And to help us talk about that movie, about probably the most famous prison in America. We have naturally gone to an ex-con. No, we are going to... We are delighted, and I have to say, frankly, a bit surprised to be joined by (laughs) a media entrepreneur maven, mogul, nabob, style guru, uh, founder of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, host and producer of NPR's very excellent interview show, Bullseye, as well as the podcast judge, John Hodgman, and for my money, uh, the best, the funniest, the greatest of all time, podcast, Jordan, Jesse Go, Jesse Thorne, my great good friend, welcome and thank you. What a pleasure to be here. When Chris gives that long super fast oh we're only halfway through but go ahead (laughs) introduction introduction to the prisoner has anybody after that ever said if it doesn't say the prisoner it's not the real thing (laughs) you're the first i'm gonna change it up at some point that's good to know that long-tailed series was called she's the sheriff yeah it was uh now the reason (laughs) we are having you on this episode jesse besides the fact that i love you like a brother and respect your work is that you have what we all admit in this room is a very tenuous connection to the location of this film. <laughs> you didn't grow up on Alcatraz. You weren't the son of a screw, as far as I know. But you did grow up on the mean streets of the Mission District before, uh, long before San Francisco fell to the invading hordes of Lanyard Bros, before it was sacked by the Lululemons. You weren't born when Alcatraz was a prison. You weren't uh, born when this film was made in 1979. But it is a major tourist attraction of that city. As a native of uh, Frisco, can I say that? people, as, people we, say that? as we call it okay. in San Francisco. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> did you have any kind of relationship with it? Was there field trips? What did the locals make of Alcatraz? I have been to Alcatraz once, mm-hmm. um, which is the same number of times that everyone else in America has been to Alcatraz. <laughs> myself, yeah, sure. Uh, Alcatraz is cool. Like, there are... There are a few kind of big tourist traps in San Francisco, which I don't know if it still is, but it, at one point was the number one tourist destination in the entire United States. Um, is that Fisherman's and, Wharf? Is that Ghirardelli Square? What's the what's the number one? Yeah, so Fisherman's Wharf and Ghirardelli Square suck. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, big time. They're both total zeros. Okay, well, that's why my parents took me to those, but not to Alcatraz. Yeah. So, so Gir- thanks, Mom and Dad. Ghirardelli Gir- Square has a uh, has a famous um, uh, sculpture by Ruth Asawa, one of the great San Francisco artists. But uh, other than that, uh, those places are just absolute nothings. Mm-hmm. But Alcatraz, <laughs> first of all, riding cable cars is pretty fun. Yep. And although you don't have to get on at the Powell Street turnaround where there's that big long line, you can just mm-hmm. get on at the next stop and it'll be fine. <laughs> uh, but Alcatraz is really cool. And actually, there's some, uh, you know, not to get too deep into the plot of the film, but there's some Angel Island content. Yes, there is. Uh, <laughs> which is another <laughs> island in the San Francisco Bay where I have been many times because, yes. not to brag, but it's where the company picnic was every year for my aunt's uh, company, the. Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC's okay. wow. annual picnic was there, and my aunt would always bring me. Humble brag. Was the final scene of the film actually shot on Angel Island, do you think? Or? It looked like it, looked like it very well yeah. could have been yeah, yeah, yeah. Angel Island. Yeah, I mean, it might even have been the, the beach where w- when I was a small child, I went down there by myself, and then I came back to the larger group and said I pooped on the beach like a dog. <laughs> and then Patrick McGowan picked it up and crushed it between his fingers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure you had the decency to bury it in the sand. Just yeah, now. I mean, Angel Island is twice as far from Alcatraz as the as the coast. Uh, it's the Island Nublar. No, what's what's the what's the site B in the Lost World Could Jurassic Park where they're like, we also had dinosaurs over here. Mm-hmm. Wow, the remainders. <laughs> um, but but like in all sincerity, as far as tourist traps go, Alcatraz is genuinely really cool. Like, mm-hmm. um, it's creepy. Uh, it's cold. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, it's beautiful, and there's you know there really is fascinating and incredible history. Like this story of the the only group of guys who ever escaped from Alcatraz, though it's not clear that they survived, um, is part of the story of you know that you get when you visit Alcatraz. Right. The main thing the main thing I remember is just being super creeped out, which I did not expect, but actually. <laughs> <laughs> Watching this film reminded me that prisons are terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turns out, turns uh, out. Uh, cell block D. No thanks. Well, and, and I mean that's something I want to get into for for a movie that came to us from the the duo of director Don Siegel and uh, producer star Clint Eastwood, the same team that earlier at the beginning of this same decade brought us Dirty Harry. Mm-hmm. You know, a a super right wing movie that I you know despise the politics of, but do really like aesthetically as a taut, well made thriller, just like Escape from Alcatraz is. Uh, this is a film I. Think think that evinces a a lot of sympathy for the prisoners, you know, laments their dehumanizing, sadistic treatment. There's more nuance in that regard than uh, I was maybe expecting just based on the the names and the credits. Glenn, there is in in Philadelphia, there is some creepy old decommissioned prison you can visit, right? I've been yep. there. What is that? I can't remember what it's called, but it is okay, down me there. Me neither. Excellent. Yeah. Should know. <laughs> Good. Eastern well, State, Eastern State Prison, possibly. Well, hit them up for a sponsorship, certainly. Well, I think the the reason for the chill we're all feeling here is not the chilling injustices of the prison system, but it's that we, we haven't welcomed everyone okay. yet. So let's let's get through this. Jesse, you, you, you get get your grading spectacles on here. Welcome everyone to the private, personal, by hand, tangent tolerant, but properly punctuated punch card driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series, The Prisoner, and attendant feature films and other content. And 
We push it, like a card of carefully screened library books and periodicals making an orbit of the cells whose occupants have been deemed worthy of having light by which to read. This is fine. This is, this is uh, solid. <laughs> I'll give this a six because it is so uh, uh, topic-appropriate. Uh, Jesse, there is a push file index stamp brief debrief to number thing we're going to get through here because that is a very famous <laughs> series of lines, series of 15, 20 minutes at most. At most. Um, that, that comes from the prisoner. It's a dead horse. We're beating it. But uh, so, yes. So push it like a library cart. Six. Six out of six for me. Six is the maximum. Six is the maximum. That's right. Can it go into negatives? <laughs> It has gone into negative no, many dis- times. Despite Glenn's disrespect for the institution, for the rules, for the so no, but yes, I'm gonna I, I'll give it a solid three. Okay. Turns cool. out many of the things that we thought were rules on this podcast were merely norms, uh-huh. Jesse. Yeah. And we've we've learned that the hard way over the last last few episodes. Okay. okay. You know, a, a zero to six scale is I'm glad you've chosen that since it's completely unfamiliar to everyone in the entire world. <laughs> I would like you to I mean, like if you're gonna use a zero to six scale, you might as well use the forty to eighty baseball scouting scale. Uh-huh. The only scale more baffling than zero oh. to six. <laughs> zero to five and zero to four. Four were right there waiting. For I used to like this dude was uh, unfortunately was like my most reliable boxing partner back before the pandemic. I could still box, but this guy and and I do not endorse this sort of objectification, misogyny, etc. But he would occasionally like look at women in the gym and be like, "Oh man, that lady is definitely like a thirteen out of nineteen and a half." And it was always like, "What? What yeah. are you talking about? Uh-oh. Where did you get this? I, I don't understand. I don't endorse what you're doing at all." But I also think your scale is weird. Right. Well, he's less a pig because he knows higher math. So, (laughs) Right. All right. Uh, Glenn, we file it like the serial number of a firearm used to commit a crime. Hmm. Off. I mean, you file it off. File it off. Okay, that's uh, penal related, but uh, Mm -hmm. I'm going to give that a four from me. It's a four from me, dog. Okay. I would have liked it better if it ended with, if it doesn't say the prisoner, it's not the real thing. (laughs) Okay. Keep that Just anything, Keep that anything micro uh, machines is a plus two to me. Uh, you know, the 2009 AMC, The Prisoner, does say The Prisoner, and it is not the real thing, Jesse. So, so there are exceptions to, to everything. We index it, like the section in the back of NPR's podcast startup guide, Create, Launch, and Grow a Podcast on Any Budget by Glenn Weldon, that you flip to when you want a quick answer of how to normalize your clips called from various sources so that they all play at a clear, relatively uniform volume, only to find that that like so many other things, is not in the book. Not okay. in the book. Okay. Not in the book. Uh, I'm going to give that a, because it is, we have done book indexes before, and specificity does not increase <laughs> point scale. So I'm going to give it a four. I'm going back to the negatives. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of into it before, but now I'm bored. <laughs> Good. We brief it like the sadistic warden of a maximum security prison informing you, a newly arrived inmate, that you will shave every day but shower twice a week. That schedule should be inverted for simple purposes of sanitation and public health inside this crumbling dungeon on an island. That should be flipped. All right. So, you know, you don't actually have to bathe every day. It's true. Uh, You just as long as you soap up your genitals and underarms Mm -hmm. on your children. That's fine. <laughs> yes, and watching your children, it, it extends to you, actually. It, it, would, it, uh, um, the, the grace that it gives you, I think, combats. The hallmark for me, Chris, is uh, a combination of aptness and pithiness. Uh, aptness, you're all over the place. You're, you're, you're great. Pithiness, uh, I'm going to knock off a point. So it's a five for me. 
Okay. We debrief it, like HR conducting an exit interview for a soon-to-be former New York Governor Mario Cuomo. Okay. It's topical. Topical. Timely. <laughs> Not apt. Unfortunately. Kind of pithy. <laughs> um, f- f- well, I mean, it might be, you know, ultimately. Uh, uh, <laughs> four to six. Four to six. Uh, okay. I don't know. Two. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> wow. Right. Oh, I like man. I'm faring poorly. I like the bloodness. I think you should change the name of uh, one of your shows to like Hanging Judge John Hodgman uh, Jesse because you are you are merciless you're pitiless. Well, it's it's part of my policy. Anytime you go on someone else's podcast uh, where the audience doesn't know you uh, and <laughs> and automatically doesn't like you, the the key is to insult the podcast that they definitely already like or they wouldn't be listening to it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, I trust you. It's the- it's the Bill Burr approach. Yes, I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> Wind up. Coming into the home stretch here. We number it like the Lethal Weapon sequels, unlike the Dirty Harry sequels, like the first sequel to Mad Max in most of the world, but unlike the first sequel to Mad Max in the U.S., where it was called The Road Warrior, like the first three, but unlike the latter five, Missions Impossible, by which I mean the feature films, not the TV show, like the first six, but unlike the latter seven Star Treks, by which I mean the feature films, not the various TV shows, of course. All right, the aptness is missing. The pithiness has just been shotgunned and splattered all over the pavement. Uh, so that's a four for me, Don. Yeah, my friends Ben and Adam have a Star Trek podcast, mm-hmm. and one of the Star Trek movies is based in San Francisco, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. The best one. Yes. Although it also includes a lot of content about a, a fictional version of the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It does. And uh, <clears throat> they have never invited me on their show to talk about that. Have they gotten so, to it Which yet? I resent. Are they doing it chronologically? Uh, they're going to do it on a tour or something without uh, me. Okay. But at the end of the day, you guys were nice enough to invite me on your vaguely San Francisco-themed episode. Mm-hmm. So I'm going back to six. Okay, look at that. Wow, all right. you didn't even right. have to shill. You didn't have to say, if it doesn't say the prisoner, it's not the real thing. Good for you. Good. Well, our inquiry into this unclassifiable and unforgettable series is not of a degree mendacious. Nope. It is not of a degree fallacious. Hell no. It is of a degree perspicacious. Okay. Arguable. (laughs) What else is it, Glenn? It is of a degree absolute, Chris. Well, I know better than to try to argue with you when you are animated like this, but uh, it just so happens that I concur. Okay. Let's do this thing. Escape from Alcatraz, (laughs) 1979, produced and directed by Mm -hmm. Donald Siegel, as you mentioned. He's one of Mm -hmm, these guys mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. a IMDb page the size of a CVS receipt. Um, Dirty Harry, original invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, It's crazy how, like, in 1945, you could just become a movie director, and then they would just have you direct a random movie every three years yep. for the rest of your life. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, he... Are you not familiar with the career of Brett Ratner? <laughs> I think his career has ended for other than aesthetic reasons, although it, it should have ended for aesthetic reasons. He directed, one of his first gigs was directing the opening montage of Casablanca. Uh, so you start there. Then um, wow. a, a shit ton of, of westerns, including a lot with Eastwood, beginning with Coogan's Bluff in 1968. And Coogan's <laughs> Bluff is one of those things you can't not say in uh, uh-huh. Eastwood's voice. Coogan's Bluff. Two Mules for Sister uh-huh. Sarah, which is one of my favorite titles. Uh, I, I, lo- <laughs> I love it. <laughs> another San Francisco film? There's another Eastwood western. I don't know if it's a Seagull Eastwood, but it's called The Sons of Katie Elder. Could be. There was a girl in my high school named Katie Elder. So mm-hmm. just just imagine. Just imagine. Two 
Two mules for whom? Sister Sarah. <laughs> Two mules for Sister Sarah. That's a that was one of those things where they just came in to the studio with that title, and it was just sold in the room. <laughs> yep. And they must have workshopped it. Like Snakes three on a like, plane? Nope. Two mules nope. for Sister Sarah? Nope. Sold and sold. It's got to be two. Next year, it's, it's going to be Mission Impossible hyphen two mules for Sister yes, Sarah. But you can't, you can't. They, read, they read the script, and there was only one mule in yeah. there. It's the sequel to A Mule for Sister Sarah. Uh, Damn it. He had a heart attack during the production of his final movie in 1982, uh, but he, he hung on until the 90s. He, he died of cancer eventually. The last film he directed, the one that he had a heart attack during the production of, was Jinxed, starring Bette Midler. And so whatever you think and of him Ken as a director. And Ken Wall, later the star of CBS's Wise Guy. Ken Wall, they hated each other. That was a good way. show. Uh, uh, Bette Midler, Midler is known as the... The Clint Eastwood of music. <laughs> That's true, but I mean, I think she would embrace that. I think she would. I mean, if you, if as a director, you can direct both Clint Eastwood and Bette Midler. That is like that's a spectrum, right? That's a spectrum of acting styles. You got on one, like you got Eastwood, who's like a plank of wood, and then you got okay, you got Midler, who is I don't know. But a packet of body just, glitter. Just hold on there, Glenn. I, I can okay. beat that. And I guess I am I am going to have to be the Eastwood defender on this episode. Look, the weirdest thing I can tell you about the five film collaboration between star turned producer star Clint Eastwood, director Don Siegel, is that in the same year that they made Dirty Harry together, 1971, mm-hmm. which again, whatever else it is, undeniably a tense, expertly made thriller, they also made The Beguiled, an adaptation of the Southern Gothic Civil War novel by Thomas Cullinan that would be adapted again 46 years later by Sophia Coppola. So you might not think of right. Clint Eastwood and Sophia Coppola as being two artists who would be drawn to the same piece of material, but you would be incorrect okay. in that regard. I'm just saying I think there's more to Eastwood than you think there is. There isn't much more to Eastwood in this film, as we'll get to, because this is, when you think of Eastwood, what he's what he brings to a film, this is what he brings to this film. I mean, this movie, first of all, let's talk about uh, Don Siegel. This wasn't made by an auteur, right? It's not a stylist film. But there's no reason in the world to expect it should be, because this is a process movie. This is about conveying, clearly conveying, the process of how this happened. And when it kind of tries to veer into character stuff is when I kind of started checking my phone. Um, mm. Because it mm. seems it seems inefficient the way that the so much of the process stuff is ruthlessly efficient. I feel like the character stuff. There's just something a little old fashioned about it. About like, oh, we're gonna this guy's gonna be named Litmus and he's <clears> gonna have a pet mouse and these uh-huh. are quirky characters. They're really gonna pop in their limited screen time. But I think it works. And in fact, I'm I am going to lean on the the rock, as it were, of uh, Roger Ebert for support here, who in his 1979 review of this film called it a masterful piece of storytelling in which the characters say little and the camera explains the action. It's one of those very difficult exercises in which large emotions like the compulsion to be free are reflected in minute actions like the chipping away at stone with a pocket nail clipper. He concludes, there's so much that's good in the film In the performances, the characters, the minutely observed details of prison life, the timing of events leading up to the escape, that we realize how rare such craftsmanship really is. However true that was in 1979, I think it is doubly, trebly, sextuply on our six-point scale true now. Imagine a summer movie like this coming out at any point in the 21st century. I can't Mm -hmm. do it. This is my favorite genre of movie which is boring genre movie um, <laughs> like i truly I, I truly love like the taking of pelham one sure. two three hell the, yeah the hot Matthew. rock or 
you know, there's there's 10,000 of these movies from mostly from the 70s. It bled into the early mm-hmm. 80s and right, a little right. bit back into the end of the 60s that are like handsome and grainy looking mm-hmm. uh, where surprisingly little happens and there's not that much talking <laughs> and <laughs> everything is a little bit gray brown. Yep. Uh, and it, you know, it ends with something. And <laughs> but but like the rest of it is just like there's not like I was just watching speaking of Brett Ratner, I was just watching Rush Hour, mm-hmm. which is a terrible movie yep. other than having uh, other than having Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan in it, who are both spectacularly good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, like Rush Hour, uh, Rush Hour, like 10,000 things happen in Rush Hour. Like it opens with a thing and every 10 minutes a thing happens. Uh, in this movie, they're just like, look, we'll just have the one thing happen at the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. And also yeah. that thing will be anticlimactic. <laughs> The number of events reduces the emotional impact of each one, mm-hmm. you know. And this actually was uh, pretty soon after this, the Simpson-Bruckheimer, you know, model of blockbuster making where they actually said like every eight minutes there yeah. needs to be a fight, a kiss, an explosion, a something. And obviously that was a, a new model for a new decade. This movie came out a month after Alien did, after the original Ridley Scott Alien, and you can see the things they share, right? A very deliberate pace. We're getting to know the geography of the spaceship or the prison, learning the routines and the relationships among these people who have these pretty sad lives in this confined space. It's more about the suspense, the anticipation of something happening than anything happening. Yeah. Yeah. And and as far as, you know, the Ebert review, I mean, Ebert got a lot of things right. He hated MacGyver, so you got to slap a big old asterisk on that. Um... (laughs) I'm going to tick off uh, the plot in broad terms. I'll, I'll slow down once we get to the Patty McG parts because they're the ones we, this is ostensibly mm-hmm. what this fucking show's about. But uh, interrupt me at any time as I tick it off that it starts January 18th, 1960, San Francisco, while we get a shot of the Golden Gate Bridge. So it's like. I need to interrupt you, Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> this is very important. This is critical. Famously, Clint Eastwood and Warner Brothers are two peas in a pod. Seeing that old Paramount logo, which I love, in front of a Clint Eastwood movie just triggered some real cognitive dissonance for me. Good to know. Like, Paramount, that's the Tom Cruise home. Mm -hmm. Can I tell you a a San Francisco Clint Eastwood thing? Please. Please. I worked when I was in high school. I had an internship, a paid, like a teenager job program job Mm -hmm. with... The Department of Performing Arts in San Francisco, which runs the Opera House, the Symphony, and the Herbst Theater, a big theater Mm -hmm. in San Francisco. And so when I worked at the opera, I worked with all these union dudes because the opera is a union house and has a huge crew. Mm -hmm. Uh, It really – working at the opera really – makes you angry at what passes for charity in this country. <laughs> no offense to opera, great art form and everything. Sure. Um, but, but a huge union crew. And, you know, there were some people there who liked opera and some people there who didn't care about opera at all. They were just union gaffers or whatever, mm-hmm. and, you know, stage electricians. But all these guys were in the union, and they all lived in Northern California. And so they would work at the opera during opera season and make that money, and they would work on commercials. But there weren't that there weren't as there aren't now that many San Francisco-based film productions or Northern California-based film productions. There was like 
a period where Whoopi Goldberg was making her movies in San Francisco and Robin Williams was making his movies in San Francisco. Um, and there was the television show Nash Bridges, <laughs> um, <laughs> on which every one of my acting teachers and every one of those oh, union see. dudes worked. Uh, I think they, we can all agree it's the second best Don Johnson cop show ever. You know what? They all loved. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the secret. They all hated Don Johnson huh. to a man. They hated Don Johnson, and they and they all loved Cheech Marin. Like Cheech, oh, Cheech Marin wow. could not have been more out. beloved. Yeah. yeah. But uh, Clint Eastwood, I don't know if he still does, but at the time he made all his movies in Northern California. You know, he was mayor, famously yeah. mayor of Carmel in the uh-huh. Central Coast, the Southern Central Coast. But he made his movies in Northern California. So all these guys worked on Clint Eastwood movies. And, you know, like they were stage electricians, like they spoke roughly, generally mm-hmm. speaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during the opera, they would be in the stage electrician's room watching Starship Troopers, which mm-hmm. they called Starship Hooters, um, <laughs> and and so forth. That's what Paul um, Verhoeven wanted to call it. Yeah. But they all called Clint Eastwood Mr. Eastwood, mm-hmm. like to wow. each other, mm-hmm. to each other in casual conversation, and they all just thought he was like the kindest, most amazing human being they had ever interacted with. So whatever... Uh, empty chair impressions you may have of mm-hmm. uh, Clint Eastwood. I will say that that like many of those people that I worked with thought that he had treated his crews and uh, his art uh, more more beautifully than a- anyone else they had ever worked with. Well, that's a huge testament because uh, his manner of well, his his um, approach his 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 level of expression is low whether it's on screen or off so that means that yeah. he's, he's, a, he's a real withholding dad type. he's a withholding dad type exactly so <clears throat> he must manifest that through his actions when I say he's a withholding dad type I want to be clear uh, in this movie which was made in 1979 uh, he could literally be anyone's dad. Uh, he is an age that I can only describe as being between 28 and 65. <laughs> uh, I have more I want to say on this subject, but there is a more critical question. Exactly one-third of us, by volume, is a dad. Jesse, is this film, Escape from Alcatraz, is this a dad movie? Oh, this is a profound, profound dad movie. First of all, there... There is literally what one woman in the entire two. movie. Two, just, two, just the two. In the ones, in the one. Okay, like, but they, but they do both cry. They both. <laughs> yeah. Cry. So, uh, there's one brief like visiting room scene, um, yeah. and uh, and you know like uh, the themes are fraternity, uh, uh, freedom. Uh, like Uh, escape uh, Um, how to make a raft that you saw in popular mechanics yeah Yeah, like like the physical mechanics (laughs) of solving a problem um and like emotional distance thanks to trauma (laughs) no sure sure well let's talk about that because that's exactly where like this part is not a reach for eastwood because this he is taciturn he's laconic he's squinty Frank morris uh this is a very his IQ is superior. His right? IQ is superior. Like it says so in his file. If you are a dad, you you project yourself onto the blank canvas that is Clint Eastwood because it's a very boomer, maybe pre-boomer uh, conception of American masculinity. Right? It's not toxic per se, but it is, certainly looks exhausting. 
Uh, it just looks, uh, masculinity is a prison, and here it is. It literally and figuratively in this movie, masculinity mm-hmm. is a prison. Do you agree? Yeah, okay. I think well, that you're... is a completely fair characterization. I want you to vamp on this while I look up the name of the actor who played Charlie Butts in this That film. said, I am not 100% sure I have ever seen a Clint Eastwood movie before. Yeah, right? <laughs> okay. I think, was he? he's in Unforgiven, right? Yep. He directed yeah, I Unforgiven. Unfor- okay. I saw Unforgiven. That is, I'm going to say, his greatest achievement. I mean, he directed, produced, you know, starred in that film. And also, this guy, he has directed something like 50 movies. You know, he is not someone who dabbles in directing. He has directed a movie every two or three years since 1971. And another yeah. reason his crew might love him is because he's famously like, one shot, we're done. Nope, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. But he does yeah. not keep people there. The reason he can get away with it, like with his long relationship with Warner Brothers is a, and the reason they through various regime change and everything's they keep on loving him and keep supporting him is that he does direct something that's kind of a hit every few years and he gets to make his artsy stuff like Bird and you know White Hunter Black Heart and A Perfect World. I mean these these are good Clint Eastwood movies that no one talks about that do not have the kind of toxic masculinity that you're referring to or if they do they're really interrogating it in the way that Unforgiven I think does in just a brutal way he brings everything in on budget on schedule you know super reliable like you said three or four takes so so they love him because he is the auteur who does not demand a christopher nolan level budget of them Mm -hmm. just they consider him a good solid investment if people haven't seen unforgiven that is sort of like um what if a western were as arduous and deeply unpleasant as the american west right 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 it's about conquest yeah. not uh, right not i mean and then there have been a number of of follow up westerns like that slow west and what's the the name of the the, the 310 woman to yuma made... that was one right do you mean the remake of 310 to yuma yeah i don't know i i, I haven't seen so. these movies they yeah. seem boring to me mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's fine you're copying to that and to be fair, Grace, I, I, I'm you. not accusing Eastwood of toxic masculinity at all. What I am saying, it's a throttled masculinity, right? It is an effortful masculinity that, that strives to not be seen as effortful. Okay. And that's that's kind of what I think he personifies. Kelly Reichardt is the name I was groping for. I mean, her, her Westerns, they're not explicitly as about masculinity as, as the Eastwood ones are. But I think they, they do present the rustic existence of the frontier as being as frightening and disease-ridden and unpleasant as... Unforgiven does, and many other revisionist mm-hmm. westerns do. It's interesting that we call the ones that are more realistic revisionist westerns <laughs> and the ones that are fantasized just regular old westerns. Right, because it was a fantasy. All right, so uh, you can see this manifest as he's walking down the gangplank to Alcatraz because his hat blows off in the wind. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't go back to get it because he's a man. Men don't chase after hats. He's. No. Uh, br- I think the opening scenes setting as he goes onto the island are very effective because it does establish the level of surveillance, a little bit of the geography, and the procedures of it all. He's brought in. He's stripped and inspected. This is not Oz, so we do not get a cavity search. Uh, we, we, we see him walking naked down the main cell thing. Everything that's being done here is to get you to empathize with this guy. You don't get any of what I was fully expecting was as he's walking down, the fresh meat, fresh meat, woo, sexy, like any of that crap. And I was waiting for the shower scene. I was waiting for the gay stuff. Yeah. And it's a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Um, still there but it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I'm looking for a new punk. Good luck. You don't understand. I just found it. Why don't you 
show her what you can do. Can I, Glenn, can I ask you a gay question? Please. Um, <laughs> do you think, so I couldn't, on my TV, I couldn't see it. But do you think in a movie theater you could see Eastwood's crank? I don't think so because the the shadows were such that mm, you could okay. see you could see the tip yeah. of the pubes, but uh-huh. uh, I, I don't. I think they went out of their way. They hired some special gaffers right. and, and stage technicians. I respect the fact that when we see him, we we see his butt as he's walking down the hall naked. Like he clearly was like, okay, time to do do the shot. He wasn't like, hey, you know, I I need to do some squats before we shoot this. The way like, like imagine if this was a Dwayne Johnson movie, he'd be like, if if The Rock was being sent to The Rock, he'd be like, okay, well, first of all, he needs to have an adorable daughter, yeah. and he's probably wrongly convicted. Like he he definitely didn't actually commit a crime. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I'm gonna work out for six hours immediately before we do the the butt shot. Also, one hundred percent. The Rock has a a buffer of some kind for his butt. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, right. Well, you can't gaze upon it directly. Yeah, yeah. Sure. you you would go blind, Jesse. But again, the the butt stuff is there to establish vulnerability and to get you empathizing with him. So the next morning, the inmates are counted. There's a whole process yeah. behind it. Hang on a second. Let's just talk for just a second about uh, like Wolf's. We're getting there. Perception. Getting there. I, I think. I think maybe Wolf is a bad criminal because he does not choose his victims well. You look out at that lunchroom full of, and I understand that Frank Morris is the new guy, but you look at all these potential punks in the vernacular of this film, mm-hmm. and Clint Eastwood is the guy you decide to pick on. I, I think Wolf is. Uh, he could find a softer target. He's, I mean, uh, Eastwood is a little craggy, but he's handsome. You know. I mean, I, I would. You know, I wouldn't uh, kick him out of bed for eating crackers. Um, uh, but in this mess hall we learn a couple important things. There are no forks on Alcatraz. No forks are given. Uh, That the spaghetti they eat for breakfast is painfully (laughs) white. It's bleached. It's like if you made Uh pasta out of Wonder Bread. It is... is uh, unusual. The big dude, as you mentioned, Wolf, uh, gives him the f- gives him the eye, does a few tricks with pasta and a match. We meet Litmus. What do you guys make of Litmus? He's called Litmus because his face turns red and blue. He's got a mouse. I know we're supposed to find this guy ingratiating and charming. I found him repellent. Wow, that's bold. Uh, I have to he... say that like <laughs> one of my favorite parts of this kind of movie is a funny-looking guy from the 70s, who's actually from the 50s, who, like, just gets to be in a thousand movies just because he's funny-looking and talks in a particular way. Right. And this isn't the best example of that. Uh, Litmus is sort of the the fixer of the prison. He's a sort of classic stock character. And as you mentioned, Glenn, he he carries a a little mouse around with him. Uh, And there is a great line in that first scene where Clint Eastwood is sitting with Litmus and says, do you actually eat this pasta? And Litmus says, I dream about that pasta. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think he is the greatest, just as I don't think the there is a character we'll meet named English, who's the black guy in the movie. Uh, I don't think he is the most well-drawn character. Right. Um, and, you know, they both have kind of real obvious signposting as to their role in the story and mm-hmm. their role in... But, honestly, given that it's one of my favorite things, I was fine with it. Okay, cool. Uh, I, all I have to say about Litmus is he's played by an actor named Frank Ronzio. Mm-hmm. And uh, his, his Wikipedia entry is just a stub. Guy was like, yeah, of course, there, there must be 40 films in which Frank Ronzio appears as Litmus or some variation thereof. He's a friend of the producer, probably. Yeah. All right. Uh, 
uh, Eastwood is taken to see the warden, and here we go. Here's our boy, Patrick mm. McGowan, Patty G, looking mm. pretty good, actually. A little buttoned up, really? but that's kind of the... That's his, kind of his, the... He had, like, some red splotches on his face. Yeah. Did I imagine that? But he looked... He looked almost younger than he did. I certainly really? younger than he did in a lot of the Columbos, but um, huh. but uh, I didn't get that. I thought he looked a little sickly. Huh. Um, okay. uh, he's got a really nice scale model of Alcatraz, and uh, this is where we get his <laughs> flat, undemonstrative uh. delivery. Um, and uh, Jesse, have you ever seen the prisoner? Have you ever seen McGowan in his element? I have only seen uh, well. I've seen the Simpsons parody many times, sure. <laughs> uh, and then as as a child, uh, my best friend Jody's family had cable, mm-hmm. and I believe that was when it was on Nick at Night. Sure. Uh, oh, so wow. I, I I saw uh, I saw it a few times for fifteen minutes at a time, mm-hmm. uh, while wishing that I was watching Danger Mouse. Yeah, sure, that's <laughs> fair. Ward wants to see you. I had a hard time kind of clocking into this because the thing I love about this actor is how idiosyncratic he is, how his inflections are, as some have said famously, whack-ass. And uh, he is going out of his way to portray button-down, strangled. Uh, And so even though it's clearly him and you get that kind of sparkle in his eye, he is so undemonstrative, despite getting second billing in this movie yeah. that is teeming with actors who have a hell of a lot more to say and do than he does. If you disobey the rules of society, they send you to prison. If you disobey the rules of the prison, they send you to us. Alcatraz is not like any other prison in the United States. Here, every inmate is confined alone to an individual cell. Unlike my predecessors, Wardens Johnson and Blackwell, I don't have good conduct programs. I do not have inmate councils. Inmates here have no say in what they do. They do as they're told. You're not permitted to have newspapers or magazines carrying news. Knowledge of the outside world is uh, what we tell you. From this day on, your world will be everything that happens in this building. Could you clock into this, Chris? I mean, you said that he's got such a big presence in this film. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with you there. I think his, his aggregate screen time is something like 10 or 12 minutes mm-hmm. in a you know 115-minute film. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought he was great. I thought something about his sadism was so... Like, like there was just a real like banality of evil kind of quality yeah. about it because he's not cackling. He's not, and I mean, this guy has a great cackle. We know that. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't even seem to be getting any perverse delight out of being this awful torturer. There's the character Doc who paints, and, and his horrible offense is that he paints a portrait of the warden. Mm-hmm. And for that, the warden takes away his painting privileges and Doc's only recourse is to cut his fingers off. Whether that's a, just like a moral protest or an attempt to actually get transferred off, off of the rock, I'm, I'm not sure. A from column A, a from column B. I think Robert's Blossom. Such a great guy. Such a great yeah, such a such a great name, mm-hmm. Roberts Blossom. Mm-hmm. Chester Doc Dalton is the character. He's very very memorable, and and certainly the sort of protectiveness, the unlikely protectiveness that he brings out in Morris, the the very sort of incremental, tiny shades of affection that are permitted in this this hard 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 environment. You need something as dramatic as that, as this gentle 
sensitive man mutilating himself to to get Morris, you know, to even like tell off the guard, right? He very dramatically like like picks up the severed fingers and puts them in a little box and gives them to the guard and says, "Put that in your report." Mm-hmm. It's a version of white knighting, but it's a but it's the kind of white knighting that was so omnipresent at this time in film and television that it doesn't even come off as that because it's just so. It's just... Relative to to like what you would expect from other Clint Eastwood roles at this time, and even things like even the way that that the prisoner a decade before this went out of its way to show us that yes, as much as Number Six was an allegorical representation of of human aspiration, individuality, whatever, it was also like this guy's a badass, this guy's a Superman. I think this film shows admirable restraint in that regard. I mean, it makes Morris a methodical, observant character. He's not, you know, he's not a guy who picks fights. He's not a guy who is like, okay, Wolf is going to come try to rape him in the shower. I guess I got to beat this guy up. But he doesn't have any swagger in this. And I, and I really appreciate that. Well, because he's based on a kind of masculinity that doesn't swagger, right? Uh, the, he, he is of a kind of a breed of masculinity that is not about being demonstrative. That's what the, the man with no right. name is. Like that, that he doesn't have right. to. But he also... He only does it when pressed. It's high noon. There is a way in which he becomes mildly protective of characters who clearly don't have his resilience. For example, I, I was looking for the name of the guy who plays Charlie Butts. Larry Hankin. And I was very moved by this performance. You know, he's the guy who's in his cell weeping on the night of the escape because he's anxious. You know, he's afraid they're going to get caught. He can't go through it. And he, he doesn't make it out, right? He la- he's late. So he's not going up out of the cell onto the roof at the same time of his buddies. And we, we clearly establish, again, through Don Siegel's methodical, clear direction that you need a boost to reach the bars to get up to the next stage of the subroof or, or whatever. So he's trapped. He just he has no recourse but to go back to his cell. But I, I loved the way he's just sitting there crying in his cell and the guard walks by and just looks at him and is like, well, yeah, it's another guy weeping and praying for death again. Oh, well, you know, and, and just keeps on walking along. Also, the scene where this guy who looks like Anthony Fauci, the healthiest 80-year-old in America, is like, oh, it's my birthday. I turned 35 today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, mm-hmm. I fell off my couch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. I think oh, boy. A, general, a general case in any movie made before about 1985 is that you're astonished at what characters <laughs> are, are supposed to be 30 years old. Right. You're like, holy cow, that's a 30-year-old on screen? Yeah. Yep. And often the actors themselves were actually 30. <laughs> like It's not like watching a, a movie set in a high school and like all the actors are 29. Right. Uh, it's, it's that just these people really, really did not wear sunscreen. They didn't wear sunscreen. They smoked. They ate a lot of beef. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's, like all being, it's like being in Denmark all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like watching Dynasty when like the people having the hot sex are – middle-aged humans, and that's just, it it takes you back. Alcatraz is a maximum security prison with very few privileges. We don't make good citizens, but we make good prisoners. Burglary, armed robbery, grand larceny. You've escaped from quite a few prisons, haven't you? That's why you're here. I, I think my, my issue with McGowan's performance, not really an issue. I mean, he does, I, he's fun to watch, but I had assumed that he is coming off this um, buttoned up because he needs some runway. Because this film is, as the escape happens, we're going to see him come unhinged 
Nope. <laughs> the escape happens. Yeah. He crushes a chrysanthemum. Yeah. End of film. Credits. Uh, so it's not a journey. When you're in acting school, the th- like one of the big things that they tell you constantly is make choices, mm-hmm. right? You know, like the the premise of acting school basically is to take all, knock all of the shame and self consciousness out of you, to the point where you can fully emotionally commit to a made up mm-hmm. situation uh, without, you know, as I said, without shame or self consciousness. And one of the elements of that is to make choices, right? Like you, you get a script, it could go this way or that way, and you, you choose one of them. And there are actors whose greatest gift is choice-making. Uh, Nicolas Cage, I think, mm-hmm. is the easiest answer to this, right? All Nicolas Cage does is make choices all day. And there's You're no, referring there's, to uh, one of the two stars of The Rock. Yes. The only Michael Bay movie that I like. There's no holding back with Nicolas Cage. He's going to choose every every scene is going to have choices, right? And one of the interesting things to me about McGowan's performance as the warden in this film is that he has made a very bold choice. Uh, one bold choice <laughs> and he is just like here we go i i am essentially affectless right. like he's like affectless cruel intensity there's no question as to whether this character is a cruel or bad guy right. there is no wrinkle in that there's no moment where you learn why he prefers order and sympathize with him briefly like he just is the thing he's like oh great evil warden i can do that he does it he does a great job but there are no there are there are no semitones in, in in this music yeah and i mean this is something again that i i really feel like this has vanished from mainstream filmmaking the idea that we can present these characters and the entirety of the revelation can be their behavior we're not going to give you their backstory we're not going to give them a monologue oh you know my dad was killed by a mugger who escaped from whatever the fuck i think that's good i i mean you know since frank morris was a real person you could look up what he actually did to get sent to jail if if you care to but uh, i think that is a strength i also want to find out who really painted the portrait of magoo and the warden that is attributed to doc in this movie because i think that's a great portrait it's not a flattering portrait but uh, i i think it brings out that inner life that suppressed emotion or or that absent emotion that is a warped creepy looking painting and i i think it's it's great i would love to know who actually did it it's really interesting to me in the film to whom they do and do not give backstory mm-hmm. so Clint Eastwood's character has no backstory other than that we know that he has broken out of other prisons. And I think that that is, you know, that's something that it really takes Clint Eastwood to pull off because one of the essential qualities of Clint Eastwood is that he is an unknowable cipher. He's not an everyman, Mm -hmm. uh, but he is an, you know, an obelisk you know (laughs) like he's a fascinating thing to stare at and wonder about Mm -hmm. and there are other characters you know when Clint Eastwood is assigned to the library early in the film and starts working with English who is Mm -hmm. the black guy um, they establish quickly that uh, English is in the prison because he was the subject of a racially motivated attack and he killed the two men who attacked him, right? Mm-hmm. There is a moment in the film where uh, 
Dweebus McDork face, uh, Harry Butts or whatever his name is, mm-hmm. um, uh, where they established that like basically what happened is he he was a casual car thief who stole the wrong guy's car. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, some of these characters do have that, but, like, then there are these two brothers that also break out with them, and basically yeah. their backstory is they're guys Clint Eastwood knows <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who yeah. are brothers. One of them is uh, very young Fred Ward here. It was kind of fun to see. Also, supposedly, I, I have seen this film twice now, and, and I've read a couple places that uh, one of the unnamed inmates is played by Danny Glover. I have failed to spot him both times. Yeah, I think he's probably on the stairs. But the, in that scene in the library... Um, you're getting 1979 enlightened, right? You're, again, this is another way when you can see how hard the screenplay is working to make you like Frank in a way that is, it's just doing furious work below the surface where he is, mm-hmm. they ha- they develop a res- mutual respect in a way that the film kind of keeps underlining and pointing to because it's trying to make you think that Frank is a reasonable person. Frank is a good person. I really like that performance by Paul Benjamin, who I recognize from uh, Do the Right yeah. Thing. He played mm-hmm. uh, ML, who hangs out with uh, Sweet Dick Willie. Um, he's the he's the guy who's like if if you've seen Do the Right Thing, one of my fav- favorite movies of all time. He's one of the three old dudes who hangs out on the corner. Basically, mm-hmm. I'm gonna break it down. Let it be broke. Yeah, the thing I had forgotten until I looked at Do the Right Thing Again when it came out on 4K, I think at the beginning of this year, is that uh, ML is the one who's talking about global warming. He's talking about the ice caps melting. Yeah. And the other two guys, Sweet Dick Willie and um, I think the other one is, is uh, Frankie Faison. Um, they're just telling him he's crazy. So that was funny to see in a movie from 1989. He's the one with the crazy manner of speech. Uh, like he has a com- he's he's not from a foreign country. Uh, he's American. He's from the American Southeast. But uh, he speaks in an accent that is like you would think he, he was W.D. Fard, the founder of the Nation of Islam. Like he has like it is like it is like West Indian via England, via Malaysia, via Charlottesville. Damn, man. Do I have to spell it out? Come on, make it plain. OK, but listen up. I'm going to break it down. Let it be broke, motherfucker. Can you dig it? It's dub. Look at those Korean motherfuckers across the street. I bet you they haven't been off the boat a year before they open up their own place. That's right, man. It's been about a year. A motherfucking year off the motherfucking boat, and they already got a business in our neighborhood. A good business. Occupying a building that had been boarded up for longer than I care to remember. And I've been here a long time. Yeah, he's been here a long time. Yeah, boy. <laughs> and now for the life of me, you know, I can't figure this out. Either them Korean motherfuckers are geniuses, or you black asses are just plain dumb. <laughs> Uh, and that is on display in this film. Maybe not quite as much as in Do the Right Thing, but is on display in this film. Yeah. And he is also just gorgeous to look at. Not necessarily. I mean, uh. I, I, I don't know whether I don't know whether I mean that he is like romantically attractive, but he just has a you just yeah. want to look at his face. Yep. And and you just want to hear his voice. And I'm not even sure, honestly, that he's good at acting. He may be. He may not be. I couldn't tell you because of the level of interest I had in hearing his voice and looking at his face. Rock effects do definitely. It either brings out your strength 
White breaks you. What happens when you get out? I won't. Ten years ago, I was in this bar in Alabama when two dudes started hassling me. That was their first mistake. They pulled knives. That was their second mistake. They didn't know how to use them. That was the last mistake they ever made. I got two 99-year sentences back to back. Seems like you could have pleaded self-defense. The dudes were white, man. Just like you. When he goes to sit with English in the yard, he's informed that sitting on a high step denotes your status in the prison. And I can totally see why, because that's a great view up there. I mean, that is, yeah. they should they should build some condos. Yeah, it's a great because, view of the crap. big empty swimming pool that they live in and have no skateboards, yeah. but, but yes. Um, but that's another thing. Like, English does get a backstory, as you mentioned, right? So they parcel out. They take the backstory that you would normally give your hero and parcel it out to these two side characters who get, he's got a, uh, English has a daughter, uh, who's getting married, uh, and... Uh, He's butts. white, yeah. just like you. Just like you. There's a lot of that in this film. I, th- I think there's the right amount. I think it's three times. I think we hear it three times, and three times is the correct number. Rule of threes. And, for example, they don't give the warden any backstory, but they do give him business. And this is good because McGowan really is good with little actility business. All this fiddling <laughs> with the nail clippers... Uh, twirling the nail clippers, which leads to... Yeah, the thing with Frank stealing the nail clippers off of the warden's desk is so subtle that I didn't even clock it the first time I saw the movie. Uh, There are two pairs in the little ashtray at the beginning of the scene and just one pair after Frank has left. Right. And then the next scene, Frank is in his cell looking at these nail clippers and wheels are turning in his mind. And at one point in this interview in his office, he goes over to a gilded cage and begins to torture a little bird. Which, because that film <laughs> is underlining that he is torturing the prisoners in their cages. It's efficient, I guess, except it kind of yep. underlines something we already knew about this dude. Yeah, but I think, I think the most important thing of all of this is that Clint Eastwood does not need a reason to break out of this prison, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the, 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 the dorkwad breaks out of the prison because he needs to see his wife and he doesn't deserve to be right. in the prison. His, his the, mother is dying and he, he wants to yeah. see her before she... Yeah. yeah. The, t- the, two, uh, the two brothers break out of the prison because that's like their thing that they do. Yep. And they're like, they're like the fun guys in a, uh, in a heist movie that are always bickering, but then they're experts at explosives or something. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they're the Scott Kahn and Casey Affleck in the Ocean's Eleven uh, hierarchy. That's that's them. Yeah, and Clint Eastwood, I think his character breaks out of the prison not because of some, you know, they took my daughter type reason, but simply because it is his nature to be free of uh, these structural oppressions yep right like it doesn't matter what he did and he's not even trying to like it's Clint Eastwood he's not trying to get out of prison so that he can uh fly like an eagle and dominate the world it's that he has that classic 
trapped masculinity thing, which is he's basically breaking out of prison so he can be alone and no one will bother him. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. He's going to have a cabin in the woods. He's going to whittle. Yeah. Yes. He's going to drink whiskey. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. When this film needs to do the exposition dump, it is very efficient at it. So on that, on the steps, English imparts to him that the bars are super strong and the rock is super hard and the, the there's more... There's more screws. There's more right. um, things than anybody. Boom. Knows about the, the currents in the bay yep. for some reason. Yep. Uh, later on, um, you know, when they're in the mess hall and they're watching a film as a joke about, uh, you know, it's a lousy Western, which is, I think is a joke either about Eastwood or about Siegel. The camera is right on Eastwood's yeah, face yeah. when Fred Ward says, ah, oh, it's just some cowboy bullshit. I think that's Yeah, and then it was weird to see Clint Eastwood raise one eyebrow and give the <laughs> ain't I a stinker <laughs> face. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but then later on, like, we get, oh, it's the moist air of the bay that's corroding the concrete around the lip of the grill. I'll enlarge the hole, crawl into the utility corridor, get out in the roof. Tearing, you'll, we'll, all, we'll all tear ads out of magazines and turn it into cardboard, which mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. I would give up right there. I wouldn't know how to do that, and I would stop right there. Oh, come on, Glenn. Did you not do art projects? Paper mache? What cotton wadding is to the Columbo episode <laughs> Dawn's Early Light. Contact cement is to escape from Alcatraz. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of, lot of talk about contact cement. Um, which is rubber cement? What is contact cement? It's just glue, right? Okay. It's just glue. Uh, painting it to look like a grill. That, what is it that Mouse Man says about contact cement? He's like, contact cement? I've got inventory or something like that. What does he say about it? That's Fred Ward. He's like, yes, of course I yeah. can get it because I keep inventory. So I'll, you know, if we just steal it, I'll, I'll cover it up in the books. But no, Mouse Man says he, he sniffs glue at night to help him get to sleep, oh, which I thought yeah. was, again, these guys, like they are denied pretty much every human pleasure although then you know doc can paint until he can't and and somehow eastwood is allowed to order an accordion Mm -hmm. (laughs) which i thought was Mm -hmm. kind of contradicted that that speech the warden gives at the beginning about how we we have no privileges we have no uh, good behavior programs that seems like a quite an indulgence i have to say that like my 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 mom used to work in uh it not it wasn't her full time job. She was a junior college professor, but she used to do work in San Quentin Prison, uh, which is the current giant high security prison in the San Francisco oh Bay Area. I didn't know it was still open. Yeah, very much so. And one of the things about prison that this movie gets right is that there are acts of specific cruelty that are enacted by, you know, prison guards and, you know, there are situations where people are beaten, where people are sexually assaulted, like all of those things are part of the experience of prison, right? Um, But the actual torture is structural. Mm -hmm. Right. And there is the threat of sexual assault in this movie, um, which, you know, is both a kind of cliched you know, flavored with gay panic thing in movies, but is also a real part of being in Mm -hmm. prison. But it is like dispatched and it just becomes the threat of being killed very quickly. Um, One of the things that this film shows very well, and frankly, especially when McGowan is not on screen being evil, Mm -hmm. is the evil of prison guards with kind eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. When they say sorry, uh, yeah, and, and, then they, and then they do what they have yeah. to do. Yeah. Right, right, right. Painting privileges have been removed. Why? I don't know. 
Painting's all I have. I'm sorry, Doc. The thing about the heist plan, which every film like this needs, the scenes of the heist plan, which are very useful to the audience, we need to know. You're, normally they take place around a table with a map on it, and they go, you, you're the getaway, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's done at the cafeteria. Um, as they talk about these things, they are hunched over their food, talking into their food, not talking to each other. Right. But there's so many people around. Um, it's, it's, and I would think that the words, like, escape... I think that would kind of send a ripple through the through a crowd, and people would kind of like, yeah. but that doesn't happen. But it is a yeah. layered plan, right? So they're going to leave at night. They'll make some dummy heads out of plaster or cardboard. They'll leave them in the bunks uh, so they can make it through the first head count or the last head count of the evening. Clarence works in the barbershop. The Ferris Bueller dummy head is so good. Yeah. I love that. And I love that over the end credits, we just have that close-up of the, the creepy-looking dummy head it's yeah. great yeah i mean it's, it's a- very real like like this is based on a nonfiction <laughs> book and it yeah. is like what yeah. actually actually like if i remember correctly they have one of the heads they at the, oh, yeah wow at, yeah at alcatraz like mm-hmm. it is all totally real we have not even said they shot this movie at alcatraz mm-hmm. and i mean they had to substantially rebuild they had to rewire alcatraz for electricity so they could shoot this movie there because it had been disused for 15 or 18 years by the time they went to make this movie. I mean, I can't believe we've neglected that point. But yeah. obviously, that contributes a huge amount to the success of this film. There is one really interesting thing about Alcatraz that um, maybe I know because I'm from San Francisco that folks might not know, although they do have a little bit about it uh, if you visit Alcatraz, which is that it was occupied by a group of Native American people as part of the Native Pride and uh, autonomy movement of the 1970s and 80s, 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Um, And it was occupied for kind of a long time. Like, I think they were there for six months or something Mm -hmm. like that. And the film and entertainment connection to this is that one of those occupiers uh, was Benjamin Bratt, Mm -hmm. uh, who is a native also of the Mission District in San Francisco, just like me. Wow. Star of Catwoman. Yeah, and his his mother is, I believe, native Peruvian, and so he was like five or six years old, um, mm-hmm. and they went and were part of the occupation of Alcatraz. So, you know, Alcatraz has this kind of like weird symbolic meaning in San Francisco as both huh. like this legendary tourist trap as the things <clears throat> that it is symbolic of for everyone, like the greatest prison and the place where they have Al Capone or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, as like a kind of thing you see all the time, which is a really weird part about Alcatraz is that it's like this, it's an edifice that's just there. Like if you're looking towards the bay, you see Alcatraz. Well, let me ask you about that. How much, I, I can't, I don't know the geography of San Francisco very well, but I know when you're on the top of that hill with a cable car, you look down and there it is. But how much of it in, is it in daily life in San Francisco? Can you in the Mission District? Can you see it? In, if you're that no, far away I mean, from the because mm. because of the terrain of San Francisco, you know you can't see the water from most of San Francisco right. um, just because of the hills. Mm. I don't know if you've heard about this, but San Francisco <laughs> is very hilly okay. and it's cool during the summer. I've heard that when police cars are chasing suspects in San Francisco, they frequently have to do little jumps over. Yeah, they uh, fly the off the top of the hill and then land in yeah. another neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but in those parts of San Francisco where you can see the bay, 
um, the main thing that you see is Alcatraz. Like, yeah. if you're looking that direction, it's oh. the main thing you see. Because if you're looking northward towards Marin, um, there's nothing to see there. Like, Marin has had <laughs> restrictive slash classist racist development policies for mm. 75 years. So there is not much to see in that direction. If you look towards Oakland, you can see Oakland in the East Bay. Mm -hmm. But pretty much no matter where you look, if you're not looking out towards the ocean, you can see Alcatraz. And it is like it is distinctive and a little creepy. Like it's weird and sad that there is this weird, sad building there that represents people being imprisoned. And it must have been strange when they were filming this film uh, that, you know, it was lit up at night. Um, and so that must have been like something because yeah. it hadn't been. I don't know when it became a, a park or a, or a tourist trap, but it was significantly after this film was made, I believe. This is a weird thing that I just dimly remembered as I was watching this movie the second time last night and then had to check myself on. Turns out we go to Alcatraz just two and a half years before this movie in The Enforcer, which was the third Dirty Harry movie. This is the uh -huh. one that some years before Cagney and Lacey cast Tyne Daly as Dirty Harry's latest partner. Right. I think in the first movie he has a Latino partner. The second movie he has a black partner. The third movie he gets a woman partner. Uh, I think the fifth movie he has a Korean-American partner. Anyway, they always get killed. Okay. In inevitably, the, the partner gets, gets killed. No, it's Renai Santoni in the first movie. I'm, I don't want to get his uh, ethnicity wrong. Anyway, the plot involves some domestic terrorist group that holds up in Alcatraz. That movie came out in 76. This movie came out in 79. Seems like a weird choice to yep. just go go back to Alcatraz that soon. Maybe he liked it. So we're going to move the, through the rest of this quick like a bunny. There is a lot of process. There is a lot of how they make the how they make how they chip away, how they make the fake great, how they clamber up the utility uh, hall, whatever. I wouldn't have thought to put hair onto the to the dummy heads. I I would have painted them. Frankly, well, of course you wouldn't, Glenn. And and yeah. frankly, I don't okay. know that Jesse right. would have either. Yeah, I mean, I just I'm just speaking in practicalities here. I'm not I'm it's not trying rude. to be cool. And I wouldn't kind of I wouldn't have thought to have like I would have just started sleeping with my feet next to the uh, bars so that the head would be farther away so it wouldn't be staring down. We do get a good fake out out of that whole thing about how we think when Frank is up, he's yeah. doing the whole thing, and then we uh, right. that's a solid. I got me too. It's a good, good bit of business, as you say. Also, the the fact that um, I I didn't completely understand what what Morris was doing when he's um, he's like burning the spoon or something to sharpen it into a better a better digging tool. No, he's attaching it to a handle of the spoon. He's attaching for better because right. he says he needs grip. He needs better. Right, right. Yeah, right. that so, seemed yeah, like and, a and, mundane and, detail that must have been true because it's like I we're getting, right. we're getting five minutes of screen time. Because you need better leverage. It's like yeah, yeah there's but not I, a lot I, of handle content in most action films. <laughs> I <laughs> this is an OSHA compliant action movie for sure. Yeah. But that that part when uh, Charlie Butts tips him off that the bull's coming down the hallway and he needs to get back into his bed and he just barely makes it and then his digging tool is right there on the floor in plain view and the bull just doesn't look down. I, I thought that was great. Yeah, if you watch that scene though, uh, Eastwood places the uh, the digging tool <laughs> next to his bunk as he gets into his bunk. He doesn't drop it. He places it so that it will be there. Oh. It's a thing. Anyway, uh, they do eventually Whoops. make it to the roof. There's lots of clambering and climbing and business with an electric fan. And there's a moment when... Wait, we're already on the roof, Glenn? Well, I mean, I... I, I we're... <laughs> Hold on, because there's something important that I <laughs> want to highlight. Good, okay, good. first of all, Chris said this is a taut film. It is. There is 40, 40 plus minutes of not taught. Yep. So I just want to throw that out there. I was fine with it. Again, I love. I love just watching. 
people in chambray shirts. Uh, <laughs> Eat just, spaghetti with no sauce and no yeah, seasoning. <laughs> like I'm, I'm into that. Uh, before, before they escape, there is a kind of. It, it is not a. It's not a montagey zippy getting the plan together. It is a very steady, methodical. Like I thought, halfway through the movie, I thought, I guess this is going to be a boring movie. That's okay, and. It does. It does. The pace does build expertly. It's corny to say the pace builds expertly, but like it really does ratchet very slowly, almost imperceptibly, in a really great way. Uh, but right before they go, <laughs> right before they go, so there's the the black guy from the library, English, and he has he has in the end near the end saved Clint Eastwood from being killed. And there's this moment where they they meet at the bars because the uh, because English is known as English because he's the library guy, so he's passing out magazines and stuff. And they, without explicitly saying it, acknowledge that Clint Eastwood's going to escape. Uh, Clint Eastwood says goodbye to him, uh, and then <laughs> there's a shot of them shaking hands through the bars. Uh, that is that is basically that meme of the two different race muscle arms like clasping together. The scene from Predator. You mean the scene from Predator where Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers greet one another after a long absence? Yes, I have I have a T-shirt of that. I had assumed it was <laughs> The Rock and Glenn. Uh, <laughs> Dylan, you son of a bitch! The level of corniness. Of that moment is oh. so profound, and it like, like the tone of the film is such that like, it's not, they're not hitting the profundity excessively hard. It is not as melodramatic as it could be, which is all that carries me through that moment. And it's also obvious that they're like trying to reflect a kind of decency uh, rather than. A, a white guy saving a black guy by just not calling him the n-word or whatever mm-hmm. um to some extent like it 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 is a lot more about english calls morris boy repeatedly yeah. like that's that's the how they establish the yeah, yeah. the magna the magnanimity of mm-hmm. uh clint eastwood's whiteness mm-hmm. um uh, but yeah, it is a moment like the, the, that they have this lingering shot of the two of them shaking hands through the bars is so profoundly corny that it comes clo- like only the fact that it is such a slow movie and that it is not melodramatic at any point saves it from like me just checking out of the entire climax oh, of the boy. film. I feel like that moment is earned. And I and I feel like, again, I feel like the context is so important. The fact that the rest of the movie is so reserved and it's parceling out of emotion. On the emotional prison movie scale, this is like 5% of what Shawshank is. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, it's, it's 1% true. of what Shawshank is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we can disagree about that. I, I, I thought that moment was effective. I think Shawshank is a great, is, you know, it, obviously, uh, uh, whoever it is that made Shawshank, I don't remember his name. Like Frank Darabont. Frank Darabont, like obviously, had Escape from Alcatraz in mind to some extent mm-hmm. in making Shawshank. Not that they're the same movie, but like no. they're obviously, it was obviously made with an understanding of Escape right. to Alcatraz mm-hmm. and like what makes it work. And 
Yeah, like I think if this movie had the tone of Shawshank and had that moment, I would have just barfed on the screen. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like I, I think Shawshank is a very well-made movie and a good I movie. Um, like the fact that everyone loves it because it's corny, like, you know, Field of Dreams yeah. or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. like it is those things, but it's also a really good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think you are right that that is what saves it, that the tone through the rest is what saves that moment. But it is a borderline offensive moment. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> I agree with you. Definitely. Like both aesthetically uh, and culturally. I, and I will back up a bit only because uh, we, they, we do get a couple Magooan moments before the escape itself, before they get up on that roof. Um, first of all, McGee steps by the mess hall and crushes a flower. Uh, that, <laughs> that, and this is... It's I, against regulations, Morris, and you know it. I might question that uh, the rest of the film isn't as corny as, as that moment. Because here's, here's one uh, where he comes up, he says, this flower that represents your friend Doc, <laughs> I will now crush between my hands, which will cause Litmus to not so much attack as sort of do a jumping jack and causing him to have a heart attack and yep. die. So I would say <laughs> if we are gauging melodrama in the film, there's one. Um, and yeah. then later, and he dies instantly too. Like, he dies instantly of his friends of his friends' flower being crushed. Yep. I'm gonna say that was an homage to uh, number six being hit with the knockout gas in okay. the title sequence of The Prisoner. The way his face contorts and he just falls over. Uh, later, the warden stops I don't really by believe that. to uh, shake the cell down. Doesn't find anything. Makes a threat or two. I wanted the scene to be a lot more memorable, a lot more laden with portent, and 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 you know we just get more of the same warden. But we do raise the stakes because the warden can figure out that something's up with Frank something's up with Frank something's up with Frank so he orders him to be moved Tuesday morning they have plotted the uh, escape for Tuesday night all we worry Tuesday morning also uh, an arts and crafts store that my mom used to go to good to know why was it called that don't know uh, Wolf comes out of the hole after six months that that's I that's, that's something I can't quite contemplate because part of the because Frank gets, goes to the hole for a bit in this movie, and A, it's complete uh, darkness, but also B, they hose you down. So it, apart from the complete lack of sensory input, you're going to chafe. There's chafing involved in the hole. Nobody says that. I think we can say here, even uh, I, I think even I, as a NPR journalist who uh, has no opinions about things for that other than my quest for truth... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I'm interviewing John Waters or whatever. Sure. Um, that solitary confinement is torture. Yep. Um, and uh, to say that it's cruel and inhuman is to, like, understate how horrible it is. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I mean, we, we glossed over the fact that one of the things we get in that briefing with the warden is that every cell in Alcatraz is solitary. Mm-hmm. And if they, yeah. you know, if they put you in the hole, they also deprive you of any daylight, which is even worse. Yeah. But, I mean, it's the, one of the ways in which it is more torturous than other prisons is you, you don't have a roommate. Smallest cell I've ever been in. You'll get used to it. I don't think so. I don't like living alone in one of these cells. You'll get used to that, too. It's interesting to me, Glenn, that you said more of the same, more of the same. Mm-hmm. Because I think that is one of the most interesting 
things about this movie relative to what you might think it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, if people have seen a lot of heist movies or escape movies or things that are about process, you know, what you're doing is watching a machine being put together. And it is about the excitement of that happening. Mm-hmm. And I think, in a way, one of the strengths of this movie, and it is also what makes it a little boring, but one of the strengths of the movie is that it has that more of the same, more of the same quality, which reflects the kind of oppressive, not kind of, the profoundly oppressive uh, banality of imprisonment, right? Mm-hmm. That, like, even as they even as they are building towards a grand finale, um, you have that feeling of them being trapped in the same thing every day, right? Mm-hmm. That they are just get, like, they're not gathering the hair because like each, each moment is a, is a new piece of the mouse trap, And you're like, ha ha, at the end, it's all going to explode. Like each one of those things really, you feel the weight of how nothing their lives are. That right. their lives are deprived of everything. hundred percent agree with that. I, I think the same thing when people complain about like, oh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, it's boring. It's boring. The ship moves slowly. So like, yeah, you're supposed to feel that. You're supposed to feel the, the confinement of these two astronauts who are on this years-long mission trapped in this tube. Um, yeah, and you're supposed to be high. Like, mm-hmm. it's like <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, you didn't like it. You're not on only drugs. Litmus. Only, only, only Litmus had the smarts to, to sniff the glue. Did, um, did the uh, involvement of an electric drill that somehow manages to be completely silent, complete, like a drill? You no, hear there's a, a moment. Drill. There's a moment where the where the guard hears the sound and can't figure out where it's coming from. Right, and he yes, even please. he even climbs some stairs. And and you know that for guys with that 1960 fitness regimen, climbing some stairs is a big deal. I mean, he's got to yeah. be pretty suspicious if he's going to climb some stairs. I mean, Eastwood at one point uh, grabs these bars overhead, and then you know, core strength just lifts his leg up right up and yeah. climbs up there. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a, you know, a, a impressive 1979 feat of strength. Uh, so eventually, yeah. now okay, now we are up on the roof. Eastwood pushing 50 at this point. Um, Looking good. uh, They are up on the roof. Butts, as we mentioned, isn't coming. They made a a check that uh, Butts can't uh, cash. Uh, So they shimmy down a (laughs) pipe, uh, and, you know, we get to see them, like... Face plant a couple times like the, it's not. It's this not is the efficient. second triggering thing, right? Some, someone coming off of uh, my my whole two year injury domino effect that I am finally healing from started with a torn Achilles tendon. So first we have English say that he deliberately severed his own Achilles tendon yep. to try to get transferred off the rock, and I cringed. And then later we see Fred Ward and his brother like fall off of that pipe. Oh God, this is I, I don't know that I can get through the remaining seven minutes of this movie even eastwood like there is a so there's a a part of big part of the escape is them climbing up to the roof through the innards of the prison they climb up onto the roof and there's a long kind of cat and mouse game with the with the you know the lamps that are Mm -hmm. you know those prison lamps the arc lights that are being waved around Mm -hmm. um that you would expect and then there is this sequence where they climb down a drain pipe essentially and there's a big lit window, and you expect someone to look out the window and spot them or that they will have to avoid being spotted through this lit window. But what actually happens is that it goes in kind of a boring way. 
Uh, and Clint Eastwood goes <laughs> it's like a there, ball, Jesse. Clint Eastwood goes down this, and there there isn't a threat from the window. But basically, what happens is he gets to the bottom, and he kind of like slips. Yeah, and he's fine. Like it's fine. It's it's just a normal slip. It's not a dramatic slip. It's not an, oh, did he break his ankle slip? It's mm-hmm. just like a, oh, right. Like, this isn't the perfectly oiled machine that you build in a heist movie. Right. Uh, this is some guys throwing their lives away. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah. they're just yeah. saying, I will probably die, and that's the best I can do. Right? Like, English says that he cut his Achilles tendon. Uh, but if he had known what he was in for, he would have just killed himself. Yeah. Yeah, he would have slit his throat. Yeah. The real difference is, as we, we kind of compare the heist movie uh, techniques here, is like in the Steven Soderbergh version, you get the David Holmes jazzy score, right? The peppy percussive. And in this movie, uh, Jerry Fielding, not a composer whose name I knew, but it's just that. And, and I mean, this is a, a lot of 70s suspense films. A lot of a lot of Don Siegel films employ the score in the same way, where it's just kind of the steady, like, like kind yeah. of the tonal bah, thing bah, that is. Bah. Yeah. I think it really works, but it is it is unsettling. Yeah. After the drain pipe, they have to climb a chain link fence and go over the barbed wire that is atop of it. And this is the moment in the film when I was like, oh, ouchie, right? That's like after all of this inhumane treatment, this is the one. Uh I found myself really thinking, I could live in that library. It's a nice library. And here I was like, oh, no, ouch. And uh, Eastwood tells the other dudes, watch out for the barbed wire. That doesn't make the barbed wire any effective. The fact that you're watching out for it, it is instructed to be a thing that you <laughs> you have to deal with. And we established they have these wool pea coats that they're allowed to wear in the yard. Where, and I mean, maybe there's some wardrobe restrictions. Like maybe seasonally they take away part of their uniform. Yeah, or it was whatever. June. But, but so, yeah, that seems yeah. like the right. I mean, you just you keep that thick wool pea coat, throw it over the barbed wire, and that Oof. protects you from the barbed wire, right? Ouch, 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 I mean, ouch. you have to carry the coat that far. You have to get it yeah. down the drain. Pipe I think. Somehow. Glenn, I'm with you. I think this the climax of this film would have been a lot better if there had been a scene of them going, ooh, ow, ooh, 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 ow, exactly. ooh, 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 And then somebody's, yes. somebody's like, oh, no, I accidentally juiced this lemon. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just do the Grand Budapest Hotel prison break. And then there's just a bunch of sharp... Sharp shells on the beach. And like, oh, 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 let's turn oh. back. Let's turn back. This is, I got an ouchie. Um, so they do make it down to the water. They start blowing up the life preservers and the raft. Um, you know, you know. I mean, I'm not looking for any kind of homosexual subtext here, but if I were looking for it, there it is. Uh, because mm-hmm. okay, in the actuality, and that, that blowing actuality, up that raft use... that would take four hours. Well, that it, would take. Look, I I got a flat on my bike two weeks ago, and I had all the shit you need. I had a patch kit. I had a spare tube. I had a pump with me, and it still took me forty five fucking minutes to get rolling. I mean, again. they showed most of the forty five minutes in that scene. <laughs> 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 it's the. Uh, let me say this: it's the most inflation I've ever seen in an action wow. film. So, you know, you automatically get an NC-17 if it's uh, yeah. fully in frame, Jesse. So. The actual dudes used a repurposed, I think, um, concertina to blow it up. Look, so this is why I thought the accordion was in there. This is I thought well, the accordion is going to be a thing, but of course they couldn't carry the accordion oh, over the thing. right. So yeah, I don't yeah. know why they switched it up. Maybe maybe to just have that scene where... It would have made more sense. Also, I, I would not even mention this if people had not been bitching for more than 20 years about the end of Titanic, where supposedly whatever thing Rose is floating on, there's also room for Jack to float there too, and mm-hmm. she doesn't have to kick him off or whatever. Not a thing I ever noticed in Titanic, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. many, many people did. 
it doesn't look to me like there would have been room for Charlie Butts on the little floaty yeah, thing they yeah. built. <laughs> it seems pretty uh, tight fit for three. Yep. And Especially the with the size of Charlie's butts, if you know what I'm talking <laughs> oh, about. Oh, that's Guys carrying rude. a wide load. Sick burn. He's not. Sick, he's sick burn. very thin. He's, he's, he's very, very thin. thin. Uh, the next morning, Butts is standing at attention to his cell. Frank is discovered. Then we see, and here's, I don't think it's a deliberate shout out, but a very familiar looking helicopter comes and brings the warden onto Angel Island. This is a very right. prisoner-esque helicopter. Yes. Um, Helicopters looked real stupid in the 50s and early 60s, Glenn. Yep. Uh, and we learn that uh, we see a notebook and uh, photos belonging to Clarence Anglin, one of the dudes who left, uh, wrapped in a raincoat. There's a huge search party going on. Uh, McGowan instinctively uh, clambers up onto the rocks like a mountain goat, basically, or a, a sea goat. I mean, he's very spry for a dude. Yeah. Uh, I thought, this guy is clamoring like a sea goat. That's, that's what, what I, I thought. thought. <laughs> it appears that they drowned. Why? If that was important enough to take along, they wouldn't have lost it. Maybe they lost it to look like they drowned. Well, it's a chrysanthemum on the rocks. It's very close to the surf, so the surf should have mm. moved in the time Chrysanthemums native to Angel Island. And the associate warden, who apparently minored in maritime botany, is like, nope, no, not on Angel Island. Are you kidding me? No. Warden, we just got a message from the director. Watch you on the next plane to Washington. Two chrysanthemums grow on this island. Not here on Angel Island. Why? I'm curious. The tides were mild in the fog light last night. They left at lights out. They had a nine and a half hour head start. I wonder if they made it. They drowned. Yes, sir. The warden crushes the chrysanthemum. Uh, we learned that their bodies were never discovered. There has since been circumstantial evidence of a raft found or pieces of a raft found on Angel Island. So some people think. Yada yada, and there's been all kinds of uh, unsolved mysteries and and uh, America's most wanted stuff since then of sightings of these people. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the end of this film. Even Ebert, who who praised this film overall, really really liked it. He found the the conclusion a bit anticlimactic, a bit deflating, as as uh, some of us have. I don't know. Like it is it is such a after forty years of of the you know the Simpson Bruckheimer model of perpetual motion. I found this kind of quiet, ambiguous conclusion really refreshing. I, I love the the single title card. Not five. One title card. Here's what we think maybe happened. And then just holding on the paper mache head mm-hmm. over the titles uh, as that, that eerie score plays. Loved it. Loved it. The, uh, the, actually, the last time we see Eastwood at all, they are on a little thing and they're paddling away, which is essentially the ending of Jaws, right? It's, it's Roy and uh, yeah. Richard Dreyfuss <laughs> paddling away yep. from the camera. So. Smile, you son of a... Yeah, yeah. So let's rate this film. Good. I think I uh, I think that the anticlimax is it's wonderful for the film because a it emphasizes the reality of the film right that like mm. part of this part of this film is about the like drudgery of this amazing thing right like there is this extraordinary thing that happened which is that men really did this. But this banana story is real, right? But what that story reflects is the oppressive sadness of their circumstances, the eternity of time, like the way in which 
time loses meaning yeah. and our lives lose meaning in imprisonment. And like ending with that thing that actually happened, which is no one knows what happened. And it's not like they sug- it's not like they're like, no one knows what happened, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there's no hint of that. Right. It's really just, and that's the end of what we know. Yep. Yeah. Um, and did they die? Yeah, probably <laughs> not for sure, but yes, they're probably dead. Um, and, that I think reinforces that thematic quality of the film that it, it is about the, you know, the oppression and drudgery and inescapability of um, imprisonment, and and that and that the ultimate choice that they make is that they choose either to escape or die. Mm-hmm. Right? They don't choose yeah. to escape. Right. That's not the choice they're making. The choice that they're making is they know they will probably die. Mm -hmm. They think they could theoretically escape. Um, And so they're choosing, yes, I will take that set of outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so what the what the finale of the movie is, is it just presents you with that set, the same set of outcomes that the prisoners accepted. Which is one of the things that makes the film difficult for me to rate on a scale of zero to six, uh, because it is so much, A, of its time, and B, in its effort to demonstrate the drudgery, the uh, endless amounts of time that this thing took to actually happen, and the fact that it was composed of small, boring tasks like chipping away at cement and making cardboard (laughs) and stealing hair. Yep. Um, th- the fact that it does that so effectively that I was a little bored. Um, do you hold that against the film? I kind of do. I give it a four. Oh, all right. I give it a six. I mean, I, I think on the on the Gerda. I mean, I think it, it, it accomplishes everything it, it it wants to. You know, and I mean that that thing may not be palatable to everyone, but uh, although this movie was a hit, we should say this yeah. wasn't. Uh, you know, uh, this this was a pretty solid hit when it came out. Um, I do think that idea of of. Uh, Yes, either we die or we escape. That ties it to the prisoner in a very obvious way, even though the village is a much more pleasant gilded cage than than Alcatraz is. Mm-hmm. Um, it also makes me wish that there had been more collaborations between Magoon and Eastwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, these two guys, like these are the two actors in screen history who have the greatest gift for expressing revulsion and disgust just through their faces. Uh, they share that ability. Okay. In his uh, biography of McGowan, not a number, Rupert Booth, and yeah, another source I, I turned to hoping for a little more dirt than we got on uh, the McGowan-Falk relationship. Very little here. It just uh, has McGowan expressing his admiration for Eastwood's quiet command of the set, his commands of budgets and schedules, all the things that uh, McGowan, when he was in charge of that stuff on The Prisoner, wrestled with. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish these two dudes had worked together more. Mm-hmm. I think they complement each other well. Mm-hmm. All right, Jesse, give, you, give, give us a, a number grade. First of all, if anyone is still listening and, and still hates me, I get now that it's one to six because of number six. I get okay. that now. Good, good, good. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm going to say, I mentioned this is my favorite kind of movie. I love a slightly boring 70s movie. I think in the ideal version of this, it becomes 
it, you are surprised at how exciting it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 is pretty hugely exciting for most of the movie, the movie despite rules. being great. kind of like, you know, despite mostly just being shots of like <laughs> static Walter buildings. Walter Matthau has a cold. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> some of the, my less favorites of those kind of movies, like, I, I like but don't love the conversation, which is like mm-hmm. not that exciting version right. of this. That's a San Francisco movie too, right? Conversation. It is. Yeah, yeah, the conversation is totally a San, great San Francisco movie. Um, I was surprised, especially in the last half hour or so of the movie, how compelling I found the the grand finale and its immediate lead up, given that it there was no obvious cueing to this is the exciting grand finale. There was no, like, that can be done really well. Um, yeah. Soderbergh, I'd like, mm-hmm. you won't find you won't find me sure. saying an ill word about the Oceans movies or Out of Sight or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I, I love them, love them. Yeah. But, like, the fact that I found it so compelling while it retained its sort of existential flatness mm-hmm. was really impressive to me. So it's not my favorite of this kind of movie, but I, I was uh, I, I thought it was a very good one. So I'm going to say five. Okay, cool, cool, outstanding. I will say that if people want to watch what I think is a better uh, movie with this existential flat tone, the movie that I think of as the apotheosis of these films that then became the beginning of the next generation of films is a movie from right around the same time Michael Mann's Thief sure. which is Hell, yeah. one of my favorite movies it is like a beautiful version of this um, but not as quite as mannered in its beautifulness as some of Michael Mann's other work mm-hmm. and it is also about the kind of like sad banality of criminality and so forth um, but is like more fun without being cute about it Yes. Interesting. Also, also from 1981, the year of the next film on our list, which is Scanners, David Cronenberg's Scanners. There you go. That's the movie, by the way, that man hired uh, Dennis Farina on when Farina, I think, was still a cop mm-hmm. or had yeah, just retired I think he was from like being a, techni- a cop. At the- a technical advisor on the movie. Yeah. And they were just like, uh, this guy's pretty awesome. <laughs> And there, there's also this real-life thief, John Santucci, who was kind of advising on the criminal side, who later starred in—well, not starred, but he played a steady supporting role in, in Mann's uh, crime story. There's a whole great book to be written about Michael Mann's use of real crooks yep. in his movies. And I'll, I'll close by saying two things. One, uh, a past guest of this show, uh, a friend of yours, Matt Gorley, famously coined the term a good lawnmower. This is, a, this is so, so much Saturday, a Saturday, Saturday lawnmower. good lawnmower dad movie that it's a Saturday lawn mow. B, you know how you knock this up from a four to a six for me? It's very simple. It's staring us in the face. Musical numbers. It'll carry mm-hmm. you over all the boring bits. It will, uh, right. it will invest those boring bits with, you know, uh, danceability. You start, up, okay. you start up with an I want number. It writes itself. You go to the cell block D. There's your dream ballet. There's your cue for the dream ballet. It, it's, it's, it, it, that's exactly the goosing that this film could use. So Jailhouse Rock, that's what you're... There is a Jailhouse Rock scene in this movie, to be (laughs) clear. Absolutely. Um, The the bulls don't even let them finish their song. Uh They cut them off mid-song. It's so mean. But I'm wondering, like, would you see these as being like Jailhouse Rock, where it is a prison band? I mean, we know the story of Jailhouse Rock. The, The 
you know, the, we know the rhythm section was the Purple Gang and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a real prison band within the context of the narrative of Jailhouse Rock. Oh. Do you see these as being like that scene where the prison band is performing in Escape from Alcatraz? Do you see them as being led by Clint Eastwood on his accordion that he uh-huh. really has in the film? Uh-huh. Or do you see them as a more, as a more uh, musical theatery um, suspension of disbelief within the, you know, serving the narrative of the film without being, I can't remember, is that... Diegetic yeah, yeah, and extra diegetic oh, is on and off screen, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- um, yeah I think di- I think the band playing on screen that we hear is diegetic. Yeah, right? okay. and then the anyway. score is non-diegetic. I think. Okay. Yeah. No, this is non-diegetic all the way. This is this is a big splashy sudsy musical with uh, with chorus girls. I, I just you know just awesome. you know just uh, and they they got spangles uh, to you know it's basically I mean, Chicago. That's this is Glenn, let, turning uh, into Chicago. Let me just say. Chorus Girls, yeah, fifteen out of nineteen, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it was so kind of you to do this. Thank you, thank you so much for coming on to our our goofy little show. We are punching way above our weight, guest wise. I, I gotta say, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm I'm glad that Glenn recognized my passion for the prisoner. Uh, a show that I've seen 40 Can't minutes of <laughs> 31 years ago. Um, yeah. A show, the remake of which I briefly considered watching, but then Oof. never got around to. Good um, uh, no, seriously. Uh, thanks guys for having me. It's, uh, I was honestly, <laughs> I was, I was just really excited to watch a movie. <laughs> That's and what my counts. wife is. This totally counts as a movie. So yes, never have children. Bar this, this is uh, this is my takeaway. Maybe I'll blade that out. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. But, uh... All right. Thank you so much. Yes. All right. Next time, uh, Washington Post columnist Alexander Petri joins us for David Cronenberg's Scanners. Till then. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. I hear the train a-coming. It's rolling around the bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison. And time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps a-rolling on down the side and tone. A Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemek. I wrote our silly little theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark on vocals and keyboards and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Find out more about Casey at vitalvoicetraining.com or caseyaaronclark.com. Jonathan Clark's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp. You can find them there. You can find us on Instagram at a degree absolute, on Twitter at not a number pod. You can write the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at Gmail. Our thanks to Jesse Thorne for coming on the show this week, and my personal thanks to my dear friend Glenn for being on such intimate terms with me that he's willing to share his 23andMe genealogy report. It's it's just so uh, there's white and then there's you know ultra white there's like it's like ultraviolet or pitch black the social x-rays that tom wolf wrote about 
Absolutely, yes. And that's what tortures me. Freed me from this prison if that railroad train was mine. I bet I'd move it on a little farther down the line. Far from Folsom Prison, that's where I want to stay. And I'd let that lonesome whistle blow my blues away. Check, 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 check. Ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha. Good. Ha, 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 ha. Don't want to blow out the levels with your maniacal demon cackles. Jesse knows how to do a mirth check. He's practiced on the mirth checks. Escape from Alcatraz. Escape from Alcatraz. Honored to have you. Let's clap. Okay. All right. Ready, ready, ready. Three, two, one. Oh, it scared the dog. Oh. Okay. <laughs> she just jumped out of the studio. It was pretty oh. cute. Aww. Poor girl. Man, I don't want to be responsible for frightening a dog. Yeah, That's well, uh, going to carry that guilt with me.